0: Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or
1: at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Number Two Testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome
0: to The Two Testaments podcast, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Will Kynes.
2: and I'm Ronnie Cosman,
0: and in this episode, we're looking at Romans 12:1 1 to 1513 with Mike Bird and Nij Gupta.
2: Dr. Mike Bird is Academic Dean and Lecturer in Theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He is the author of An Anomalous Jew, Paul Among Jews, Greeks, and Romans, and he's also the author of, well, a number of books, but another important one for us today is he's the author of the Romans Commentary on Zondervan's The Story of God Bible Commentary Series. Dr. Nijay Gupta is professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. Uh, Nijay has also written a number of books on Paul. Actually, both of them co-authored a uh, commentary on Philippians together. Uh, but Nijay's first book on, uh, on Paul uh, touched especially on Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, and is entitled Worship That Makes Sense. And he's also written an essay, which is important for our purposes, on how First Maccabees illuminates Romans chapter 14.
0: Yeah, you have mentioned both Mike and Nijay have written a number of books. Yeah. They also seem to write on social media all the time. This is true. I, I, there are those people, I just do not know how they find the time to do it all. And also, find time to join us on the Two Testaments podcast. I'm not sure how they do it, but we're so grateful that they have.
1: So Hi guys. Thanks- Good yeah, to see thank him. you.
0: <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Uh now you both have written a lot on Paul and you've also written on Romans and I'm be interested to hear a bit of what drew you to studying Paul but then also studying Romans. So maybe we could
3: start Mike with you. Yeah, well Paul is what I call the UFC of biblical studies. That's 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 where all the big fights go down. You know, I mean, you've got gospels, you've got Catholic letters, you've got New Testament ethics. But if you really want to throw some punches, take some punches, pin someone down on the mat, that's, you go to Pauline studies because it is it is rough and tumble and no mercy is given and none is asked for. Um yeah, so that's one reason, you know, Paul, particularly if you're in a reform camp, Paul, Paul's kind of where it all happens. Uh, but you know, in Romans, it's it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the big deal. It's kind of like the main event within the main event, you know. So it's it's a very important letter. It's a, It's got huge implications for the study of Paul, the study of early Christianity, Christian theology, and in every age, Christians have to wrestle with, with Romans. And I, in the history of the church, when people have had a fresh encounter with Romans, it's been a time of renewal and reformation that has happened. You know, from Augustine to Wesley uh, to Martin Luther to Karl Barth, when people read Romans with fresh uh, eyes, uh, and with new questions and and in 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 difficult contexts, uh, it, it can really have a big impact upon individuals and the church. So it's it's a letter that at some point in your Christian life you really you really need to spend a lot of time in because you know th- th- this is kind of a, a big deal in biblical studies.
0: So uh, Mike really likes to shake things up. What about you, Nijay? What what attracted you to Paul and then also to Romans?
1: yeah I, I come at this from a different direction um, I, I for a long time I've, I've kind of stayed away from Romans it's kind of like New York City you know exciting things happen there but uh, you also know it's kind of uh, it's kind of busy and hard to find a parking space and um, weird smells come out of the sewer um, no it's 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 always seemed like this beast of a text with so much going on the idea of writing a commentary on it just seems overwhelming to me I've always worked on short books like Philippians or uh, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians. So, Romans always just seems like this gargantuan text with, you know, everyone having said so much about it. Uh, The angle that's really uh, drawn me in is um, social history. And Romans is one of those texts, which we're actually going to talk about today, where um, we get bits of information about who is in the city Uh, names of people, uh, kind of subcultures within the church. And then you can start to piece together what was actually going on in the church. Some texts, we don't have a lot of information like Ephesians. We don't really know what's going on in that Mm -hmm. text. Uh, Colossians, we can sort of kind of figure it out by kind of eavesdropping on what's behind the text. But Romans, there's actually quite a lot of information there. And for me, you know, when I when I dream at night, when I'm sleeping, I dream of being a social historian. And um, I, I've, I'm just fascinating, especially by the end of Romans, where you get all this information about Phoebe going to Rome, or uh, groups of people that are there, and what they're like, and, you know, what are Quill and Priscilla doing there, um, all sorts of stuff. So, I'm fascinated by by kind of the realia of the text, that there are real people there. It's not Paul writing to this mass of people that we don't know anything about. There's so much information there and I just love mining all that data as we study about early Christianity. Thanks, DJ.
0: Now, the next question we want to address is focusing us in on the passage we're looking at right now, which is chapters 12 to 15, 13, and how that fits into the book of Romans as a whole. So, Mike, back to you. How do you see this passage fitting into the broader book of Romans?
3: I think it's it's very important. It gets so neglected. Like Most people love Romans 1 to 4, justification by faith, get some juicy stuff in Romans 5 to 8 about you know sanctification and then you know the wretched man in Romans 7 great hope in Romans 8 and then chapter nine is for the Calvinists chapter 11 is for the end times people you get the first two verses of Romans 12 you know um, you know in view of God's mercy of yourselves as living sacrifices that type of thing but then people just sort of peter off. It's kind of like everything. This is just this is just the the rolling credits or the kind of the thank you speech. So I think chapter twelve to fifteen is very much neglected, uh, and which is which is a, which is a horrible shame because there's so much good stuff here. You've got Paul talking about spiritual gifts, offering a series of tweets about um, ethics or how to live with your neighbours in a pagan city. Talks about uh, references to the to the uh, to the government. OK, um, a text that even Jeff Sessions loves. Um, <laughs> so I've seen him quote that. Uh, and so then some eschatological exhortations about, you know, keep yourself righteous as the day of Christ approaches. And then uh, in particular, 14 to half of 15, you get basically he shows you how to learn how to live with differences. OK, how to live with 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 people who have different convictions uh, about the Christian life. In Paul's case, it's about how much of the law do you have to obey? I mean, do you keep holy days? Do you keep the Sabbaths? Do you abstain from certain foods? That type of thing. Uh, Paul also tells us about his travel plans at the end of chapter 15 as well, and particularly where he says he has the priestly service of proclaiming the gospel. And he talks about how he's planning to to go to Spain via Rome. So there is a lot happening in this section, and although it is neglected, uh it shouldn't be okay mm-hmm. so it's not kind of you hit Romans 122 and you can switch off um there are stills there are still several courses on this menu still to come and uh i think readers preachers interpreters uh, need need to persist in going through the letter to see the good stuff that's still coming
1: anything you'd add to that Nijay? uh yeah, i mean my my interest has been on paul's use of um cultic metaphors, which means metaphors that relate to religious practices like sacrifice and uh, a prayer and, and, and temple gathering and things like that. And what's interesting about Romans 12 is we're all familiar, you know, kind of this is one of those memory verse kind of things, offer your bodies living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Um, but actually, this plays an important role in the letter in chapter 1. Uh, you have Paul talking about his own worship. He uses language of being a worshiper, la truo. I think 1, verse 7, 8, something like that. And then you get into kind of the dark side, the shadow side in verses 18 to 32, talking about uh, perverse or misshapen worship and idolatry. And then Mike might talk about this later because he loves this. In chapter 15, you have Paul's priestly ministry of offering the Gentiles as a pleasing sacrifice to God and his responsibility to ensure they're blameless and then here in chapter 12 you have this kind of mega statement of it, in some ways this is what Paul really wants from this church He doesn't just want them to play nice. He doesn't just want them to give him money for his ministry. He wants them to offer their bodies as living sacrifices, a way of conforming to the image of Christ. So, in some ways, um, this is kind of the center of the letter, the kind of gravitational pull that everything else can be drawn into. It just even starts the way, in view of God's mercy you know, he, he's saying, looking back on everything that's gone into this big thing we call salvation, now here's a response. And so, uh, just looking at from this lens of cult worship, um, you might call it, uh, it, it plays an absolutely central role.
0: Okay, yeah. Now, what about what you find most difficult in the passage that we're looking at? today. Are there any parts of this passage that you find difficult to deal with, and how do you deal with
1: those passages? Nij, why don't you start on this one? I mean, Mike kind of hinted at this, but a big part is just um, sometimes chapters 12 and 13 seem like a grab bag of kind of Pauline sayings, and it's almost like these are some of his greatest hits. We have this similar problem with the book of James, but uh, we have a hard time analyzing the flow of James. Is it just sort of a bunch of sayings kind of jumbled into a bowl, Uh, or is there some, you know, something that connects them? And I even today, as I read again through this these chapters, just in preparation for this, I, it just feels haphazard. Um, what connects them? You know, if you had the job of explaining how Paul gets from one thought to the next, um, you would be struggling. And I think that's that's a really big challenge. Um, I'll just throw another one out there. Uh, you know, chapter uh, chapters 13 and 14, uh, excuse me, 14 and 15, really get into uh, – subculture communities in the church, and scholars have bent over backwards trying to analyze this and come up with, what were these groups like? Who was in them? Who were the strong? Who were the weak? Exactly how does Paul align? That's kind of the fun, nerdy work that we do. Um, Beverly Gaventa, a New Testament scholar, uh, quotes, uh, I think Ernst Kaysaman, uh I think somewhat regularly, and she says, you'll have to forgive New Testament scholars if they feel like they can hear the grass grow and the bag <laughs> bugs creep which means we love to hair split and argue over the boring minutiae so in that sense it's more of a fun challenge than it is an obstacle but it is something that we spent a lot of time figuring out what was actually going on in this church
3: yeah what about you mike i agree with NJ. one of the real riddles is who are the weak and who are the strong mm-hmm. in romans 14 to uh, 15 and, and we want to naturally say well obviously it's you know, it's the teetotalers of the weak and uh, the strong are the people who like their their beer after church on Sunday. Uh, but it was probably far more complicated. I think the weak and the strong, it's, it's more about people whose consciences are easily offended. And it's it's presenting a number of issues that was very, very important back then, uh, but we'd probably find a little bit perplexing now. Uh, the other issue that kind of vexes me is what on earth led Paul to write Romans Uh, 13 verses 1 to 7, this whole thing about, you know, uh, obey the government, pay taxes, Mm. because i got to tell you something, that's not what they say in the state of Virginia, you know, where the state's (laughs) motto is, don't tread on me. (laughs) <laughs> okay i think i think the, st- the state of virginia they're more of a re- they're more of a revelation 13 you know, you know, you know gov- all government is babylon the great just burn it down burn it down kind of like that so what led paul to uh say these remarkable things about you know why christians should be obedient to the government? Uh, you know, I mean, were there some Christians who thought that they were so spiritual, they could, they could live without respect to worldly powers? Were some Christians in danger of imitating the kind of uh, growing and creeping anti-Roman sentiment that was brewing in Judea at the time, because you may know, but in 66 AD, the uh, the Judeans launched their own rebellions against Roman power. You know, it was Paul uh, seeing the writing on the wall and did not want the churches to imitate uh, that kind of, you know, revolt against the Romans. So I just wish we knew what led Paul to write those remarks. And the other thing I'd like to know is, uh, If Paul knew about Nero's persecution of the church, would he have written the same thing? Mm. Um, So it's questions like that about Romans 13 that I find very, very uh, uh, vexing and challenging. Maybe he just would have added a sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) On the condition that, yeah, who knows? Yeah, well, I mean, and this is the the question I ask students. Um, I say, would Paul rather be Nero's chaplain or Nero's assassin, you know, which one, if Paul had to pick between one, you know, um, would, would Paul rather be Nero's chaplain, you know, wonderful marriage of church and state that, you know, that, you know, that we have in the church of England, um, that type of thing. Did he want that type of arrangement or did he want something more like the, uh, uh, the, the Cristera Ray revolt that took place in Mexico in the 1930s, where you had Catholic guerrillas, you know, fighting against the socialist government that was imposing upon them. Um so that's 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 a, that's a good essay question I put to students, trying to get into Paul's political uh, theology and, and how it might express itself.
2: Great thanks uh, nija you've so you've written about uh, Romans twelve one to two in your book on cultic metaphors, uh, and you've already talked about it a little bit just now and I wonder if you could walk us through those verses and where you see uh, the particular cultic metaphors you know where's the what what are the words that you see that are triggering this kind of recognition of here are cultic metaphors in these first two verses.
1: Yeah. So, um, cult. you know, so, the first thing to say is when we talk about Paul's theology, we often, today, we think in kind of bins, like we have the ecclesiology bin, and we have the pneumatology bin, we have the Christology bin. Um, what's interesting about Paul is, yes, he could talk topically on occasion, but if we are to describe how he approaches what we call theology, really, he's a semiologist. He's a metaphor maker. He teaches doctrine or theology through metaphor. So, we can make the analogy, if Jesus was a parabolist, uh, then Paul was a metaphorist. Uh, He loved using metaphors. And so, we think about his big metaphors. He loves family metaphors, brothers and sisters. He talks about himself being a father, God's a father. We pass over these things easily in scripture because they're so familiar to us. But just looking at his letters, he so commonly uses kinship family metaphors. Um, Another series of metaphors he uses on military metaphors. Even in Romans, he talks about armor and he talks about fighting and war and things like that. Uh, well, I wrote my dissertation on Paul's use of non-atonement cultic metaphors. This is a good you know, academic speak here. What does that mean? Well, when I, if I were just to say sacrificial metaphors, we start to think Lamb of God, atonement, propitiation, all those $5 million words. Um, I was really interested in the formation of the church, the formation of the Christian person, holiness, uh, as it relates to Paul's use of non-atonement cultic metaphors. And we have a good example here in Romans, offered by his living sacrifices. Paul can use all kinds of symbols to talk about the shaping of the Christian life, like slavery. I think chapters 5 through 8 talk about offering yourself to God as slaves. Paul starts out the letter talking about himself as a slave, as opposed to an apostle, even though he does bring up his apostleship. Uh, Well, this seems to Run parallel to this idea of being a slave is offering your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, in that time, they lived in a culture, the Greco Roman world, where everybody was offering uh, animal or possibly non animate sacrifices all of the time. It was just common rituals. Um, you pour out drink offerings of wine or, uh, or other liquids and you offer uh, often animal sacrifices. And it, I think it became so mundane and normal and typical that Paul had to kind of jolt them into saying, "No, think about it, Ronnie. You are you you are yourself the thing that needs to be sacrificed." But there's a paradox there, because once the animal is sacrificed, it's eaten or burned up or whatever, and Paul introduces a paradox here and says, offer your bodies, so your real whole being, as living sacrifices. This would have been jarring, it would have been oxymoron, it would have been a paradox. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, yeah. I die every day, or I die daily, Right, Paul says in Second Corinthians, we carry our, around in our bodies the necrosis of Christ, which means the fermentation of the dead body of Christ. Um, he's P- Paul's not against using some off-putting metaphors here, but he's talking about you know, so what? W- just to be really, really brief, Paul's seeing a church that's fighting over who is God's favorite. Right, early on in Romans. Paul says, God doesn't play favorites. Okay, Jews, Jewish Christians are saying, we're God's favorite for these reasons. Gentile Christians are saying, we're God's favorite for these reasons. And Paul's saying, there's a much bigger problem here, and there's a much bigger need. And the need isn't decide who's the favorite child in the family. The need is, you need to live sacrificially out of love. You need to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. And then he goes into, do not be conformed to the world. He's saying, the world just gives a sacrifice and is done. But you need to be like Christ. So I feel like this plays into what scholars call cruciformity, which means conforming to what Jesus Christ did himself, which is offer his own body up unto obedience to God and love of neighbor.
2: Now, Nijay, what does it mean then when he goes on to say that this is your spiritual act of worship? Is that the best way to translate <laughs> the underlying Greek, or do, you, or do you want a different way to render it? Yeah, you, this is this is it? really
1: hard, and maybe Mike has some thoughts on this. But I, I drew for the title of my dissertation. I drew on Gordon Fee, who says worship, who translate that as worship that makes sense. Uh, because sometimes this w- word uh, spiritual, which is logikos, can mean reasonable or um, something that makes sense. Um, I don't think I, – I, th- I can tell you what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't spiritualize it. I would not even use the word spiritual. Um, I would say uh, true worship. True worship. And that's contrasting to something. Uh, false worship is just a ritual. And I have no problems with rituals, but Paul's interested in the ritual meaning something to the person doing it. So, uh, when, when Paul's talking about Christian religion, and he wouldn't use that terminology, he's saying, don't phone it in. Don't just show up to church. Don't just do the, the motions. He's saying, it actually has to come from inside of you. It has to mean something to you. So, if I were to paraphrase that, I would say, this is worship that uh, engages your will or something like that. This is, coming, this is really coming out of who you are. This is really testing what you're made of. Um, th- this, is, this is deep down really important to you. That's the way I might paraphrase it. Okay. Uh, Mike, so Paul then
2: goes on to say, um, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, this isn't the first time Paul has mentioned the mind, right, in his letter to the Romans. How does the mind here relate to what he says elsewhere about the mind? And is there a kind of pivotal shift or what's going on?
3: Yeah, well, the mind is, is the, the center of one's thoughts. It's, it's where you, you, know, you, you do the reasonings, but it, it's not purely an intellectual thing. Uh, there's also an emotional side, okay? And there's, it's also very strongly uh, associated with the personal will, Okay, And that's why Paul can say uh, in other occasions, you know, but we have the mind of Christ. So he wants not just our, the outward use of our bodies. uh, uh, He wants also our intellectual life, our emotions, uh, could say even the very seat of our soul to be orientated towards the Lordship of Christ. In verse three,
2: Paul then warns his audience, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to Again, We have this kind of piling on of thinking language, which mm-hmm. is interesting in light of the, I don't know, N. J. Is, is this relevant to the, the logic, you know, the, the, ra- the not the rational, but the, the reasonable worship um, and perhaps the mind that Mike just spoke to. But we have this piling on of all this thinking language, right? Do not think of yourself more highly than you mm-hmm. ought to think. Uh, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does that phrase in verse 3, measure of faith, mean? Am I, am I supposed to think that uh, different people in the church have different, have been given different amounts of faith?
3: Now, I, actually, I actually would translate here the word pistis as stewardship okay so i i think it's referring to i don't know neejay's N- 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 the the pistis guru um he can he can tell us on this but in this particular passage um, i think the greek word pistis has a has a has a meaning of stewardship okay so he's talking about you you need to exercise your gifts with a, with a certain kind of faithful stewardship uh, that has been allotted to you Okay, um, that's something of, I guess, of a minority translation, uh, but I think that makes sense. Certainly of what we know of the semantic range of the Greek word pistis, and I think I think it fits with this particular context. But I'll happily defer to my learned <laughs> colleague and friend who has forgotten more about faith language than I will ever remember. Uh, yeah, this is a tough one.
1: I, and and I've I read a bunch of commentaries on this and nothing seems to be um, the leading view. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, I just revisited the, the, this this morning and uh, I think it was Jimmy Dunn who uh, made the case that measure of faith is um, he's looking ahead to the arguments between house churches and he's looking ahead to the arguments between the strong and the weak, the so-called strong and the weak. And now some are saying, Hey, we're enlightened. We're smarter. This goes back to Mike's kind of what he was saying about one group saying, Oh, we're smart enough to know that we have freedom in Christ and another group. And, <laughs> and, and, and if, and, and so I think Dunn was saying, uh, looking ahead to that measure of faith means, Oh, you know, all that brilliant enlightenment you have, you got that from God. So don't be all braggadocious about that that does make sense to me. Um, if that's the direction that's going in that, uh, all this brilliance and wisdom you have to know right and wrong. And, you know, you might point out someone else's sin and say, I know better than that. Well, how do you know better than that? You get that from God. And so we have to go back to, this is about humility. This is about what God gives us. Um, another option is faith is some sort of generic word, uh, here, you know, measure of faith or your gifting something like that. It's kind of a more generic term for what God has given you. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, I, I I don't put a whole, I don't hang a whole lot on that, except the bigger point, uh, everything you have, like he says, the Corinthians was given to you by God. So you have no reason to boast ever. That'll preach. Okay. <laughs> Great.
2: Um, now we move on to verses nine through 21, Mike, and it looks like we have, as you already mentioned, we have a grab bag of unconnected commandments here. Yeah. I mean, Paul's range of commands here is, it's very wide ranging. Right Here are some of them. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't claim to be wiser than you are. Don't avenge yourself. And if your enemies are hungry, feed them. Now, is there somewhere in there a thesis statement or some way to organize this kind of list of what it looks to be a disparate commandments.
3: Um, Yeah. I mean, you're right. This does seem random, it seems like Paul's um, random ethical tweets, you know, and every day he just puts out another one, uh, some sort of, you know, terse comment uh, about something or other. Uh, I I think it does have some unifying themes. I think the, the two unifying themes are, first of all, love within the community and then showing love to those outside of the community. So, I mean, you know, love is very very prominent in that section. You know, um, I mean, he starts off by saying love must be without hypocrisy or it must be uh, sincere. And, I mean, he he does echo a little bit of scriptural language. You know, there are a few places like in Amos where it talks about, you know, spurning evil and clinging to what is good, and then he finishes on the, you know, um, Uh, the old proverb about not seeking revenge from people. So, I mean, I I do think, I mean, it is a fairly loose, uh, it does feel a bit random, but I think the theme of love internal and external to the Christian community is probably the unifying theme here.
2: Right. So you have love as kind of the unifying theme, and then it seems like he's defining what love is. Yeah. Especially with his framing of good and evil.
3: Yeah, exactly, and then he gives you some very concrete instances, and, and some of these, some of these are really quite quite striking. You know, um, you know, for for example, uh, when when he talks about um, you know seeking the honor of mm. others, um, that is that is countercultural because the whole name of the game, okay, was to seek your own honor, you know, to to climb climb the cursus honorum. You know, to, you know, now whether you're part of a trade guild or whether you're a senator, there's, there's certain ladders you can, you can rise up to become, you know, the head, the man or the chief person uh, in your little social group. And Paul doesn't want Christians playing the cutthroat game of trying to uh, get honor for themselves. Um, he, he, he wants them to try establish the honor of others. OK, and I mean, it's, it's stuff like that that is just completely countercultural. And we could also you know, see the references earlier in the passage to humility. Um, humility was not an ancient virtue. Um, yeah, nobody loved to brag it or anything like that, uh, but humility was for slaves. So there really is a, a, a strong countercultural um, vibe to what it, it Paul is saying, telling people to be humble and to seek the honour of others.
2: Great. Now we return to the idea of love in chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. He comes back to it as kind of almost reinforcing this kind of you know possible idea that this is his thesis or driving idea. Um, he says, Owe uh, no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up In this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, Mike, why is love such an important feature of, you know, of his Paul's (laughs) exhortations of his ethics? Where does he get the idea from?
3: Well, a number of places. Okay. First of all, this is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. And whenever Christians say that, I don't know, do the book of Leviticus, all those weird laws, about toilet hygiene and, and stuff like that. I have to tell them, well, actually, one of the most quoted parts of the Old Testament in the New Testament is from Leviticus, love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, but it's not just that. I think he gets it from Leviticus, but with a pike half twist from Jesus, because I think Jesus himself made a, a lot about the love command. And I think Paul is just simply continuing the teaching of Jesus that, you know, it's good to have a love of Torah, but what's more important is a Torah of love, a law of love. And I can give a hat tip to our common friend, e. J., uh, Scott McKnight, since that's a, that's a Scott i I'm, I'm borrowing there. So I, I think that that that's what I think is driving Paul. Okay, the Old Testament in light of the teaching of Jesus. And if you want to talk about laws and rules, uh, you can have a, you can have a love for the law. But what you really need is the law of love. And if you do that, you'll be doing the sort of things that the law itself is concerned about and pointing to.
2: Now, Nij, I'm curious, how do you make sense of Paul's statements here about the law, the the ones I just read in Romans 13, right? These are positive statements, right? Love love fulfilling the law. Um, Paul is enjoining the fulfillments of the law here. Uh, How do you make sense of those positive statements in light of negative statements that he makes elsewhere? So I I think, for instance, of Romans 4.13, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Or... Paul's, you know, very famous statements, you know, like in Romans 3:28 that a person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. How do you kind of put these things together?
1: Yeah, um, well, I'll do, question, a hat- I know. <laughs> I'll do a hat tip to another mutual friend of ours, Brian Rosner, who wrote a really fantastic book called and the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God. And Rosner, uh, he, he has a really, really simple, but really convincing approach where he says, uh, you know, in the past, we've tried to break up parts of the law and say, we keep the moral, but we get, we get rid of the civil and ceremonial. Rosner says, when we look at the apostles, when we look at the patristic writers, they don't do that they don't say okay we're going to take out this part we're going to keep this part rather it's about the christian shifting the orientation to the old testament rosner says what we don't see paul do and that we see other jews do in paul's time is use language of obey or be under the law so paul before he met christ would have Assume that he lives under the law, that he obeys the law. Um, and Rosner says we don't see that language in Paul's letters. We don't see it in Romans. We don't see it in Galatians. We don't see it. He talks about fulfillment. And Rosner comes up with two ways that Christians reorient themselves to the Old Testament law, which fits this concept of fulfillment. One is Old Testament is prophecy that is pointing ahead to the things to come, especially to Jesus and the Old Testament as wisdom. And in that sense, we can all claim that the Old Testament is uh, Scripture—it's God-breathed, it's inspired, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, contracting, and training in righteousness. Um, now, the question: Why is he not as hard on the law in Romans, or in, perhaps in this place, as he is in Galatians? I think it's situation. I, you know, uh, so I like to use example. When I lived in Seattle, I lived at the top of a hill, and the elementary school I took my kids at the bottom of the hill. I took my oldest daughter to school, and uh, on the way home, I'd have to bring my my just walking son. And if you only saw me and knew me (laughs) because you played at the playground, watching me drag my son up the hill, you would think I was a terrible parent because every time you saw me, I'm yelling at my son telling him to walk, and dragging him up the hill, <laughs> right? And so, it's kind of like that if all you know is Galatians, then you think, Paul is kind of crazy, he's angry, he has a temper problem. And so, if we make Galatians normative, then Romans seems like this happy-go-lucky Paul that loves the law. If we make Romans uh, normative, then Galatians, I, we all have to take it together. He's Now, one theory is he's writing to a place that has a historic Jewish church presence, a Jewish Christian presence. I think Richard Longenecker has that theory. That's possible. And if that's true, he wants to be respectful. He wants to say the right things. But I think honestly, he himself doesn't have a negative view of the law. He just wants to make sure it finds its right place within a Christian framework. And so, as Christians, Paul would say, we don't throw out the law, we don't disregard the law, we definitely don't poo-poo the law. What we do is say that it gives us wisdom, it points ahead to Jesus, and we fulfill the law uh, by conforming to the image of Christ. It teaches us a lot. That seems to bear out in Romans. Mike, Mike's written way more on this than I have, so if Mike wants to weigh in.
3: I think that's that's particularly right. First of all, I need to correct uh, Ronnie's pronunciation. It's pronounced Roth. Uh, not rad. <laughs> okay, that's the that's, that's that's the first thing I would like to correct. Thank you. In this sort of uh, the Americanization of the English language. Um, well, you I said not orientate and it's orient. So we both make mistakes. <laughs> Uh, no, I, th- I, th- I th- like with um, Nija. I do commend Brian Ross. Brian Rosner is my colleague/slash um, boss. boss. So um, saying good things about him is very good for my career prospects. But no, actually, I think he does have a good book. It, it gets away from that. Um, tripartite distinction of the law as civil, ceremonial, and moral, which never really worked. Um, you know, you could argue the Sabbath is just as much moral uh, as it is um, ceremonial. Uh, but Paul does treat the law positively as a source of wisdom for ethical instructions. I mean, he does that particularly throughout the Corinthian letters, he's quoting the law as it pertains to ethics uh and he also sees the, the the law having a prophetic function you get that particularly in Romans three but yeah we're never like under the law in other words it's the law is kind of like a consultant but it's not your constitution okay it's probably, that's the that's the analogy that I would use uh as for you know Paul's uh, change of um mood about the way he talks about the law in Galatians and Romans yeah there is a very big there is a very big shift. Um, in uh, Galatians, um, you should picture Paul, you know, dictating the letter, pacing across a room, yelling. Um, that's, that's probably the, the way to imagine. You know, it's like, you foolish, gal- oh, yeah, and another thing. Um, con- you know, pity the poor fool who was uh, dictating uh, or, 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 or t- transcribing um, Paul's rant because uh, Paul is concerned that people are putting the law in the place where Christ should be. OK, where they're, they're trusting not not just in Christ, but in the security, the salvation um, and the sort of, you know, um, religious capital that obeying the law gives them. And Paul says, if you if you're putting your faith, if you're putting your eggs in that basket, uh, then Christ is of no use to you. OK, because if, if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Okay, so he, so he really lays it down uh, really hard. I mean, he, he comes within a bee's whisker of sounding a little bit Marcionite, you know. I mean, if, if Galatians <laughs> was the only letter of Paul we had, you would think that the second century heretic Marcion, who completely, you know, um, cut off the Old Testament, the lawyer. I mean, if, if Galatians was the only letter we had, you, you would think that maybe Marcion was onto something. Um, but Paul does, I think uh walk back from that and in romans he gives us what i would call a a more a more diplomatic uh, a more diplomatic take uh and he says hey look i'm not saying i'm against the law i'm not saying the law was a bad thing the law was a good thing that's been fulfilled not a bad thing that's been abolished but we've got to remember (laughs) salvation is of christ not the law i mean the law finds its telos its end in christ OK, and so I think that's that's he's making in many ways the same yeah. argument in Galatians, but I think he's a little bit more sensitive um, to the audience. He's, he's, he's doing a good measure of reading the room. Um, you know, he, he's aware that the issues in Rome are not the same issues he was facing in either Antioch or Galatia. And he's able to um, pitch the argument in the right level, in the right terms.
2: Mike, in Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, Paul tells his audience to obey their government. He <laughs> says in verse 1, let every Except person... Except on bear. mask mandates,
3: Ronnie. Except on mask <laughs> mandates. What about vaccines? That, does that fall into that too? <laughs> I've been watching this American News Channel recently. You may have heard of it, Fox News. And, <laughs> and I've developed an incredible suspicion for the U.S. government. you know that, you know that, that, that Fauci guy... You know, he looks so old. Can we trust him? Um, no, seriously. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a. Sorry, making fun of Americans is something I just have to do. It's okay. You know, when I'm Canadian, like,
2: I'm a Canadian, eh? Okay,
3: uh, through the A in for you. Right oh there. man, I, I got a whole ten minute comedy special on you guys. It's <laughs> <laughs> like. Oh, Justin Trudeau hey so you you recruit presidents from male model contests well it's yeah. true yeah yeah
2: well, so but but hey i mean look, he's dodging the question i to... I noticed <laughs> yeah. i noticed when i talk to americans you know about uh, the healthcare system it's very different than the Canadian healthcare
3: system, or the lack thereof. I
2: <laughs> but when I talk to them and I, you know, praise what I regard as the advantages of the Canadian healthcare system, I get an immediate allergic reaction to this idea of government overreach. You know, it's socialism; it's government overreach, um, yeah. which leads us into this question, Mike. Right? Paul says, "Let every person be subject to the governing authorities." Why does he? enjoying obedience to government, and how can he give such unqualified divine sanction of the government? Is he worried about government overreach and tyranny?
3: Uh, No, Paul is not (laughs) worried about government overreach and tyranny, and the reason for that, in his world, the danger was not um, expansive and intrusive government. The problem was um, anarchy and a lack of government, okay, Uh, where it became just a, a lawless world of might makes right, Where, you know, local gangs um, in the cities kind of, you know, just um, rule the neighbourhood, that type of thing. Okay, so Paul was, and for the ancients, their real concern was a lack of governance, a lack of order, not some sort of, you know, um, sort of, you know, police state where the government is trying to control too much of your lives. So, but, but one thing Paul does add, and what he does make very clear, is he keeps mentioning the word God over and over. So, you know, Caesar or the government doesn't get, get like a, a free ride. They are servants of God. They are appointed by God. They are given power and authority by God. So, even though uh, Christians are told in this circumstance to obey the government. That is only because government itself is a divinely instituted um, institution, we might say. Okay, that, that's the, so. That means Caesar has Yahweh as his boss. Okay, which is which is which is not a particularly pro-Roman way. It's Certainly not the Rome the way the Romans <sighs> saw themselves of, of thinking about it. Um, and I would say that. Um, You know, Romans 13 should not be absolutized um, because if if you go through the Bible, there's a whole bunch of different responses to government, like uh, under the Persians, you know, a bit of Hebrew Bible. Um, Under the Persians, the Jews are very, very happy. They're very happy to cooperate with this sort of, you know, grand world empire. Okay. You get that type of thing. Uh, Under the um, Seleucids, uh, Seleucids, you know, you got the Maccabean uprising, so Torah in one hand and and a kind of sword in another one. And Revelation 13 looks forward to the kind of, you know, burning down of Babylon the Great. And then you get other ta- times where Christians are called to a, uh, a peaceful um, uh, nonviolence uh, of that order. So across scripture, you actually get quite a, a variety of responses um, to um, pagan states and pagan powers. And What Christians have to discern, uh, much like Christians had to do Christians living in Germany during the Second World War. Uh, You have to discern what to do. I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was faced with the choice. Do I go to India to study pacifism with Gandhi or do I stay in Germany and plan to assassinate assassinate Hitler? Um, As far as I'm aware, um, he chose the latter. So just to push back a little bit on that, Mike, so you gave some examples
0: already there where it would seem like the fear of anarchy could be outweighed by some political leaders oppressing the people, not in the too distant past for people like Paul.
3: But you think that anarchy did outweigh that concern? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, let's be honest, um, except for maybe Nije in Portland, most of us don't have any experience (laughs) of anarchy. Uh, (laughs) Again, I've been watching a lot of Fox News, NJ, so I've been getting all very, very, very fair and even-handed reports about the situation in Portlandia. Um, yeah, well, I think, I think, yeah, I think people were more concerned about um, anarchy than they were concerned about an intrusive government. Remember, this is that they don't have anything like 1984. You know, the George Orwell novel, where you've got some sort of surveillance state. Um, yeah, you can be harassed by government, but all things being equal, uh, a, an overactive and overzealous government was far better than um, every man for himself. Because when that happens, it, it's it's always terrible, particularly for the weakest of society. So. Um, yeah, I, 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 again, you've got to wonder, would Paul have written the same thing if he was writing during Nero's persecution? And we, we just don't know. We don't know. But Paul is more, at least in this situation, far more concerned about anarchy and Christians trying to, to resist or overthrow um, government uh, because you just end up replacing one one difficult situation with another difficult situation. Uh, you know, as as we've seen in our own time, just because you get rid of the dictator, doesn't necessarily mean you get kind of rainbows, equality, and democracy uh, in its stead. Uh, sometimes it's better the devil you know. Mm.
2: Uh, Nijay, in Romans fourteen through fifteen, verse thirteen, Paul it looks like he's addressing some kind of tension, right? Some kind of dispute uh, that's taking place in his audience. He tells them to in verse one welcome those who are weak in faith but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions and then he also tells that there are those who are strong in chapter 15. Um, And it looks like they have there's some kind of different opinions going on between the strong and the weak is it okay to eat something or not eat uh, whether some days are okay to observe or not uh, what what do you think is going on here what's the social situation if you could speculate a bit for us
1: yeah so um, you know the basic situation seems to be that you know within the kind of wider Christian community in Rome you know Rome's a big city it's it's you know obviously the the Imperial city uh, there seems to be a large by large I don't mean thousands but probably hundreds of Christians there and they're meeting in in kind of micro communities, house churches or clusters of house churches, and it seems natural that people in a neighborhood, a particular district of Rome, are going to come together who are like-minded in certain cultural traditions, maybe language, ethnicity, things like that, and they're going to formulate uh, certain habits and rituals. And so, for example, Paul says one of you judges one day as more important than the next, and so you might have a, a spirit, you know, a holy day where you. Uh, abstain from certain foods or you know, practice certain fasting practices. Uh, and then he talks about eating eating habits and what you eat. And um, it seems from what Paul's saying that different communities, micro-communities, are observing different practices and there is some sense of judgment over the other. There's this idea that we're doing this and you're doing that and you should be like us. And what's interesting about Paul, I mean, he's at the beginning of this Christian movement, and you would think your goal is to get everybody on the same page doing the same thing. Let's all the wear, wear the same t-shirts, let's listen to the same podcast, let's make sure we're going in the same direction. And Paul doesn't do that. He says, it's clear that he aligns with the strong in terms of his own personal preferences, but he says, um, respect each other, welcome each other, which means show hospitality, show respect, And um, each person should do what's decided on the basis of conscience. Now, that's really interesting. We talked earlier about thinking and the mind. Um, Paul says, don't just do something because another group is doing it. Um, You need to do what's what's made up in your own mind. This is, is as far as I can understand, a religious innovation. Um, The Roman world was highly superstitious in the way we use superstition language today in the sense that a ritual was going to be successful, a religious ritual, if you performed it exactly right according to tradition. It didn't matter, you know, in the the Greco-Roman religions, it didn't matter what was going on in your mind at all. You could be thinking about laundry, you could be thinking about work the next week. What mattered was how you did the ritual, whether you did it perfectly and if you did a ritual incorrectly, uh, you might be fired on the spot as a priest, as a Roman priest. And here, Paul is doing this thing where he's saying, the ritual itself doesn't necessarily carry all the meaning. It's really where that ritual's coming from in terms of what where your heart's at. Um, that that is something we take for granted as moderns because of the Enlightenment, uh, but it wasn't something you could take for granted back then. So Paul's saying there can be different practices in different churches, there can be different traditions in different churches, but I don't want you bad mouthing each other, and. I can't tell you how important this is for life in the church today as we think about how we look at other groups and what they do and what they don't do, and picketing and protesting and I'm not going to have fellowship with you. Um, Paul was open to quite a lot of difference of practice. There's certain things you have to get right about Jesus, uh, about the Bible, um, but he he was pretty open to people practicing their faith in different ways and allowing their cultural uh, experiences and their conscience to, to guide them. And this is one of the reasons that Christianity was considered a superstitio, a superstition by other religions, is they were fly-by-the-seat-of-their-pants religion, religionists. Not We wouldn't think that, but from the outside that's what it looks like, because they, weren't, they didn't have all the rituals controlled. Uh, so, it's just fascinating to observe this conversation going on where Paul says, um, it, it instead of judging the other person, sit down and ask them, why do you do it that way? And have a conversation and listen. And that can be a powerful testimony to the way we interact today. Now, is that opening the
0: door for people to just do whatever they want? Does Paul think it's just up to you, complete license?
1: Yes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it, it's not. And um, this is really interesting. As much as Paul sent people around to check up on churches, um, he really encouraged Uh, indigenous leadership Uh, so he really encouraged Stephanus to step up in Corinth and he really you know and yes Priscilla and Aquila moved to Rome but they were from Rome Uh, so so he really encouraged local leaders to guide them Um, so there was some trust there but I think Paul drew the line at what he would consider sin he drew the line at what was going to be harmful to themselves what was going to be disrespectful to God what was going to be harmful to others but when it came to what we call a diaphora, matters that aren't you know, considered sin, um, he did allow a pretty long leash. And um, there are certain practices where he would just say, okay, sit down, explain it to me. And if you can explain it to me, then I'll be okay with it. Uh, I think that he was pretty open to a lot of what people were doing as long as uh, they didn't step into a territory of sin.
2: Uh, Mike? Why? Paul says that there, there's something going on with uh, some people, the weak eating only vegetables. Now, s- some there we so we have the weak in faith and yep. we have the strong in faith in, here in, in this in this chapter. Who are the strong and the weak in faith and what's going on with the vegetables?
3: OK, well, that's 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 a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, again, scholars dispute this. It would be easy to say that the strong are Gentiles who don't have any problems with kind of like, you know, Jewish aversions to food mm-hmm. and the weaker Jewish Christians. Uh, that doesn't work because Paul is a Jewish Christian and he identifies with the strong. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so immediately that taxonomy breaks down. And you could probably have some Gentiles who maybe spent a lot of time in, you know, uh, living as a pagan, being an idol worshiper, who then either became a, a godfearer or a proselyte and then a Christian, and they've inherited this real strong aversion to um, idolatry. And, and you've got to remember that, you know, most of the food, most of the meat in Rome would have been pork for a start, okay. Um, so it wasn't kind of like, you know, all your different types of beef and, and, and everything else. You're probably dealing with a heavily, you know, pork, you know, or, you know, pig meat of some type. And a lot of it's bound up with pagan sacrifice. And much like Daniel in Babylon, the, the number one way to keep your, um, your diet kosher and, you know, honoring God is to, to go vegetarian. And for many Jewish Christians, that was an attractive option. Uh, that means you, you're ruling out eating the wrong type of meat or meat that's been sacrificed to to an idol or, or bound up with idolatry, or even wine that's been poured out in, uh, in libations or a drink offering, you know, that type of thing. So that, that, that's, that's one surefire way to do that. And that's what the weak are doing because they've got consciences that are easily transgressed. And Paul says, look, your conscience can be respected, okay, Uh, but you've also got to respect the freedom of others. And, you know, irrespective of whether the weak and the strong are Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, uh, Paul wants them to respect each other. So don't despise the weak for being hypersensitive. And the weak should not despise the strong for being blasé and lax, because they, uh, they, but they, they're both exercising their conscience in relation to God. And what I think the Paul, the Paul's point is, um, exercise your convictions on these matters to build each other up and not to tear each other down. Okay, and which has got you know a, a, a whole I, um. Uh, a great uh, wide range of applications to you know to other topics today you know um, should we send our kids to a public school or should we homeschool Uh, what bible translation do do we use Um, maybe issues of alcohol as well so it's 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 applicable to I think a, a number of other topics that are relevant to us.
2: Nijay, how does 1st Maccabees, uh, how do you think 1st Maccabees helps us understand some of the dynamics at play in, here in chapter 14 through
1: 15? Yeah, I'm going to be brief, but this is really interesting. So, um, you know, going back uh, before Alexander the Great, you know, Alexander the Great was this really formative figure for the development of kind of world cultures. um so before that, people's identity was largely associated, generally speaking, with location and people group. Um, and then you have Alexander the, the Great come along and conquer you know, this kind of known world of, of, of Europe and, and Middle East and so forth. And he wanted to spread Greek culture, what we call Hellenization. And this was, um, there's one scholar, um, uh whose name escapes me at the moment. But uh, he he argues that um, this is the first time we see uh, kind of the spread of one culture amongst multiple peoples. And uh, after Alexander the Great dies and, and uh, his successors take over, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, uh, he uh, threatens Jews and Judaism wants to destroy it. Uh, and then you have the, you know, this Maccabean revolt. And the reason why that's important is because this became a catalyzing time for Jews to figure out what it means to be Jewish. What are we going to fight for? What are we going to die for? What are we going to try to retain? And on the other hand, what might we give up? Such, li- such as language, it's, it's okay if we learn Greek. They decided, obviously. Uh, but then there are other parts where they weren't willing to give up and that they would say, okay, if Jews go as far as giving up on their faith and apostatizing, this is what it looks like. And so, um, one issue that rose to the surface, you had things like circumcision for men, uh, you had things like uh, observance of the Sabbath, but food practices became one of these key litmus tests for what we call orthodoxy. They wouldn't use that language for orthodoxy. And so, for example, in the book of Tobit, uh, you have, uh, you know, this this imagined uh, pious figure, Tobit, who talks about not eating the bread of Gentiles. And so, 1 uh, Maccabees in the Maccabean literature brings out this idea that Jews were willing to fight to preserve their identity. Part of that was food. Part of that was related to who you eat with, but also what you eat. And um, that became a point of tension. And so, for example, in the book of Acts, you have Peter being told to fellowship with this God-fear Cornelius, who's a Gentile, and he has a vision about animals, why didn't he have a vision about Gentiles? Because this is running along the lines of Jewish questions about purity and food was such an important part of that. And if we go to 1 Corinthians, we start talking about food sacrifice to idols and what did Jews do with that? Sorry, what do Jewish Christians do with that? What do Christians in general do with that? So 1 Maccabees tells an important story about certain dividing lines that the people of God drew. And food was a part of that. Food was a crucial part of that. I was driving with my son the other day, and he loves recounting Bible stories. He was telling the story of Daniel, uh, uh, the book of Daniel, where where these uh, Jews coming into this land are choosing to not eat the food given to them, and they instead they want to have this strict diet, and you know, my son was just so excited to tell this story because such, such interesting details. He says, we're not going to eat all those foods that, the, you know, that these uh, other people have. We're going to eat all the, you know, the vegetables and, you know, but but don't worry. We'll wash our face. We'll look healthy and, and God bless them and they're healthy and strong. This is an important story in the history of Israel to say food matters. What you eat matters. God's going to be faithful to that. And here comes p- a person like Paul saying, um, actually, it's, it's conscience. Now, conscience does play a part of that. We need to be thinking about food ethics uh, today, about how our food affects other people and and imbalances of food. But in terms of kind of the material where it comes from those kinds of things, uh, that's where Paul says some of this is up to personal conscience.
2: Mike, how does Paul use Israel's scriptures, uh, the Old Testament, to navigate this social situation here in Romans 14 to 15? What is he citing? Why does he use these passages? How is all using scripture to sort his audience out.
3: Oh, he, he, well, he, he doesn't really have that many um, scriptural citations uh, throughout. It really, it really comes to more of a head when. Um, when he gets to the end of chapter 15 or sort of right. halfway through chapter 15. Yeah. Uh, where, which I think is, you know, something of a, a climax to the letter. I mean, I, the main theme I think he's, he's heading towards is, you know, receive one another as Christ has received you. So this, this big language on welcome. But the way he uh, justifies that or, or the way he, he brings it to a head uh, is, is to say that, you know, God has brought... Uh, Gentiles and Jews both to share in his mercy. And like I think you get into chapter 15, verses 9 to uh, 13, Uh, that's where you get all these amazing quotations from um, the Psalms and um, I think there's a bit of Isaiah in there as well, basically saying that God's plan always to have uh, mercy on gentiles as well as the jews and it's really great when the gentiles will praise god for his mercy so that that's that's the main thing that that i think paul brings as a climax to kind of drawing these scriptural themes to a head towards the end of this section in chapter 15
2: would you say that's what uh, is that one of the let's say uh Strong impulses, why scholars will read the dynamics at play in Romans 14 to 15 as a kind of tension between Jews and Gentiles?
3: Uh, That's definitely what I think a lot of scholars are drawing it from, that the sort of Jew-Gentile issue uh, is being played out in chapters 14 to 15. uh, Whether it's quite so neat like that, like I said, Paul considers himself among the strong. Right.
0: Well, uh, Mike and NJ, we just really want to thank you for contributing your expertise to helping us walk through this passage and illuminating so many of the issues that that are going on here. Uh, to finish up, uh, we like to do something where we, we draw on this genre that biblical scholars, and it's not original to us, but it does seem like biblical scholars have kind of perfected it, which is the blurb. Okay. And it's also just a great word blurb. Um, so we we're wondering if you could each blurb something for us that you've recently found interesting or helpful. Now it could be a book, which is what we're used to blurbing, but if you have an article or a TV show or maybe a life hack, anything else that might've caught your fancy, we would love to hear a blurb from each of you. So, uh, Nije, why don't you go first? You've got a blurb for us.
1: Yeah, I do a couple a couple of them One is, you got to get Mike's commentary So if you're on video, you'll see I'm holding up his It's quite a large book here But it's his Story of God Bible Commentary It's funny, uh, it's got great illustrations uh, He reads the flow of the text really well uh, He quotes me, I think at least once So that's, that's a bonus uh, The other one I'll recommend is by my colleague Scott McKnight uh, It's a book called Reading Romans Backwards And it really says uh, Don't run out of steam when you read Romans A lot of great stuff happens at the end so, this relates to our conversation really well today. So, he actually starts with the material in the back end of Romans 12 through 16, it says, this is how we reconstruct the situation as best we can. And then we move kind of towards the front. Then we start to see how it comes together. Uh, it is really helpful. Um, it's really readable. Uh, it's, it's not super long, a couple hundred pages. So this is probably one of the best things I've read on Romans the last couple of years, two, three years. Those are great resources for students, but also for scholars as well.
0: Great. And you got that phrase, one of the best things I've read. I mean, that has to be in a blurb. So That's right. It.
1: That's right.
3: Uh, what about you, Mike? Uh, well, I've, I've blurbed um, many things. I'm a compulsive blurber. Um, <laughs> I'll blurb nearly any, anything if I get a free book out of it. Nearly anything. Uh, I think I've blurbed a few N.J. books. I think I've blurbed a few of yours. Well, I can blurb N.J.'s book, Paul on the Language of Faith. Uh, it is uh I think the best discussion of faith language in the New Testament in recent years and nije goes through many of the yeah that's, that's my blurb there I guess there you go <laughs> Nije goes through many of the issues associated with Paul's faith language and in fact he also deals with the question why why were Christians called believers okay this was not a normal thing in religion the 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 religion of Jupiter they did not call them Jupiter believers or Apollos believers so why does this language of believers uh, become so prominent and he also goes into some of those real nitty-gritty debates things about you know Pistis Christu a few passages in Romans should it be translated as faith in Christ or the faith faithfulness of christ so uh, NJ's book is probably one of the best discussions of faith and faith language particularly as it applies to paul uh that's been written in the last few decades this well, is I think, not planned right, we just happen to have it right there next to you <laughs> <laughs> Teresa Ther- morgan may be a close second
1: she has she has a book on faith as well she it's has a book good. on faith as well yeah. that's a close second Speaking of faith, Mike has a book, The Faith of Jesus Christ.
0: Now with the two of you, we could probably do this for an hour, (laughs) just picking up each other's books. you got enough of them. But we need to draw things to a close. So thank you once again for uh, contributing on the Two Testaments podcast. And dear listener, thanks for listening as well. Um, Please do rate us on iTunes. Uh, If you can give us one of those five-star ratings, then that'll help other people find this podcast if you enjoy it. Um, And it doesn't matter if you're the strong or the weak week. We can appreciate those podcasts either way. Uh, and, and share this podcast with others. If there's something that you heard uh, in this discussion that you think someone else around you um, might appreciate, maybe something about how they should love one another or submit to the government, I don't know, what it might, whatever it might be, um, then please share this with them so that they can get a listen and start listening with us as well. Thanks again. And until next time, keep reading.
2: The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford
1: University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kines are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarland, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plant for their help with production, editing, and promotion.